0: Hi folks, Lisa Monaco here. It's been an eventful two weeks on the national security front. The recent Twitter hack has renewed concerns about cyber vulnerabilities related to the upcoming election. The standoff between the US and China escalates with the decision to close the Chinese consulate in Houston and the Justice Department's indictment of two Chinese nationals. And President Trump has reportedly provided secret orders authorizing the CIA to conduct covert cyber attacks. I talk about all this and more with Ken Weinstein on this week's episode of United Security. Today, we're sharing a clip with listeners of Stay Tuned with Pre. To listen to our full conversation and access all other Cafe Insider content, try the membership free for two weeks. You can do that at cafe.com insider. That's cafe.com insider college students with a valid .edu email qualify for a special discount at cafe.com slash student. That's cafe.com slash student. We look forward to having you as part of the insider community.
1: Lots to cover. Lots to cover. Let's start with a Twitter hack. Recent news that uh, Twitter got hacked and some luminaries... uh, Elon Musk, Barack Obama, Joe Biden.
0: I love how you put Elon Musk ahead of Barack Obama and Joe Biden. I'm sure he'd appreciate (laughs) that.
1: I could have started with Kanye West. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. But they all apparently got their accounts hacked and there were fake solicitations for Bitcoin to be contributed and some people actually did contribute Bitcoin. Um, Looks like it was a scam and uh, it was designed to scam people of their Bitcoin and it was not apparently, at least as... The experts currently see it, not an action of a state actor, but still a pretty brazen crime and something that uh, caught a lot of people's attention in large part because of how important Twitter is to our daily lives these days.
0: Yeah, you know, I actually, my reaction, Ken, was it's kind of ominous, right? I mean, we joke a little bit that it was, you know, a Bitcoin scam involving Kanye West, Elon Musk, and the like. But, you know, when you think about it, if somebody can take over the accounts of these, you know, high profile people. And, you know, when you think about the amount of um, news that we get from Twitter, what we rely on it for in terms of everything from news alerts to uh, serious weather warnings, you know, if these accounts can be taken over for this purpose, seemingly, you know, relatively benign purpose, although it did, I think, end up getting about 100, scamming out $120,000 worth of purported Bitcoin. But, you know, what happens if on Election Day, a nation-state actor or other malicious actors were able to take over these accounts? Yeah, it's
1: it's downright scary. And these are are the most protected accounts there are.
0: Or supposed to be.
1: Yeah, and they still got penetrated. And I think your point is well taken. Look, Twitter is now a a facet of life. It is the main medium of communication by, at least by this president. It's actually been uh, declared by a federal court as being a a repository or source of official records because it is the way a lot of presidential statements are conveyed to the American people. So it plays an official, you know, an important and an official role in our society and our political life. And to your point about the elections, and we have to be thinking about the elections, they're right around the corner. I mean, it doesn't take a lot of imagination to think that if people were able to do this and these it sounds like this was just some fraudsters, think about what a nation state, you know, bent on trying to disrupt our election, what they could do. You know, they could, on the day of or the day before the election, send out messages that one of the candidates has withdrawn from the election or something crazy like that. Obviously, it would be quickly disproved, but would it would uh, disrupt things, get people... Hesitating to go to the polls, or they could talk. They could announce that there was an outbreak of coronavirus in a particular area, maybe in a battleground state, to try to suppress voter turnout. I mean, all sorts of things you could think of that could could and might well be done around the time of the election that could have really damaging impact on the integrity of the vote.
0: Well, I, you know, I'll tell you the in 2016, in the lead up to the presidential election, when I was uh, in the White House serving as Homeland Security advisor, we were concerned about. Not necessarily a hack of Twitter, although you can argue it should have been on our radar screen. You know, we obviously were focused very much on the ability of, at that time, Russia to sow discord and confusion about the election. And we were very worried about this type of disinformation and sowing chaos around getting to the polls and the like. And so I, I think this Twitter hack really makes you... Reconsider and should be making u s. officials reconsider kind of how should we be thinking about Twitter as a vector and as a of attack and as a piece of critical infrastructure, right? We historically think of critical infrastructure as the energy grid, the electricity grid, the you know the water systems, the financial systems. well, you know it, given the parade of horribles that we were just talking about, you know, what what does it mean for Twitter? potentially to be considered critical infrastructure.
1: Yeah, and it is privately owned. It's not going to be under government control, yet it plays a, a quasi-governmental function because of the way it's used by our political leaders. Uh, so I can I can see serious concerns as we head into the election. And it's not only you know, doing what Twitter says they're doing, which is trying to remediate whatever vulnerability allowed this scam to take place. But it's also educating the American people. And this is the most difficult thing about disinformation campaigns. You know, how do you prepare the American people to somehow identify or weed out disinformation from real information? Very difficult to do, especially if you're looking at a compressed period of time around an election. So I think, um, you know, the government has done some of this, the federal government, but we really need to focus on just conditioning people to be ready for this kind of thing, you know, and I, needless to say, we have since 2016 we've seen a repeated instances of the kind of thing that we saw in the run up to the 2016 election, and you know, there's no mystery that the Russians and others are going have been continuing to do this kind of malign activity and will continue to do it. And you know, everything from the intelligence community assessment in 20, early 2017 that that laid out what the Russians did in the 2016 election through the Mueller report, through the Mueller indictments of the Russians who were responsible for a lot of that activity, through a most recent report of the British. You saw the British had a report come out, kind of damning report of their own government and its inability to confront the threat of Russian meddling in their elections, which has then given rise to speculation about whether the Russians had a role in in disrupting the, uh, the Brexit election. And the Scottish independence election, you know, two very divisive uh, elections that, you know, if you look at it from the Russian perspective, they would have loved the opportunity to fan the flames in those two situations in order to divide the British people. And uh, anyway, that report just came out recently and it is sounding alarm bells for the UK system. But those alarm bells apply to us as well.
0: Yeah, You know, we're talking about this latest Twitter hack, but, you know, this is just the latest example of what we're seeing in terms of our systems and how they can be vulnerable. And, you know, I was reminded, Ken, that um, we're, we're so focused on the headlines these days, and it seems like you can't open up the newspaper without seeing a, a new report of a, a new cyber vulnerability, a new hack, um, whether it's, you know, the theft of credit card information or the from the Office of Personnel Management years ago from the federal government, you're right, that basically the hack of the US government's HR department. Not
1: your information and my information? Yes,
0: many times over. But you know, this issue is not new, right? I was I was reminded that 20 years ago.
1: When you were 10 years old.
0: <laughs> yeah, nice. <laughs> Checks in the mail for that little compliment. Yeah. You know, this is, this is not new, but 20 years ago, President Clinton was president. I was reminded I was a young staffer, relatively young staffer, for Janet Reno uh, when she was Attorney General, and we were wrestling with uh, headlines at the time of denial of service attacks. This was the first time this had really seized people's attention. This was in 2000, and uh, we were fresh off having kind of made it through the Y2K fears, right, that that the whole infrastructure was going to crumble because of the Y2K concerns. And there was a, you, you will remember this, uh, Ken, because you're a little bit older than me, you know, these were these attacks on at the time these kind of relatively new companies yahoo, amazon, ebay and they had experienced these denial of service attacks right flooding their websites with traffic such that they kind of ground to a halt and it turned out that the person responsible was a 14 year old sitting in uh, his house in Canada going by the name mafia boy but this was you know a major major event it prompted congressional hearings, uh, big initiatives, and it prompted a meeting in the cabinet room that President Clinton convened. All these tech titans and internet executives to discuss, you know, what we're going to do about this vulnerability of this new, you know, relatively new thing called the World Wide Web. And uh, when we were preparing for this episode, Ken, I was coming across. Uh, came across stories about this. And I was reminded that I was actually in that meeting. I remember going to that meeting in the cabinet room. I think it was the first time I'd ever been in there as a kind of staffing Janet Reno for this meeting. And uh, in in looking at the articles about this, I stumbled upon one of a picture of the meeting and I saw myself sitting behind Janet Reno. I I felt like I was having a Forrest Gump moment. Um, So it was a little trip down memory lane.
1: That's great. Yeah, and that that actually, that meeting... As I recall, you know, it triggered some action, requests for funding in the cybersecurity area. You know, really got people's attention that the hack, and then that President Clinton convened that meeting. The trick is going to be uh, how to do what needs to be done on security and privacy, and let uh, and still keep it flourishing and growing. But we ought to approach this with determination, and we shouldn't be uh, we shouldn't be surprised that these things have happened. Uh, It's just a replay of what has always happened whenever there's a new way of communicating, a new way of making money throughout human society. There's always going to be somebody who tries to take advantage of it. And we'll figure out how to deal with it and go on. And I know there are a number of sort of organizational efforts by the federal government to deal with the, the issue in a way that it hadn't been dealt with before. But despite your presence at that meeting, you didn't solve the problem, and the problem <laughs> yeah, hardly, continued. Hardly. And then we picked it up, when we came in in 2001 with President Bush, and, um, and look, it's just sort of trying to map out the evolution of our cyber defenses when you, you realize that the government started to get serious around the time of the Mafia Boy hack, and then you go into the OOs, and I think you look back at that period, and the federal government wasn't quick enough and agile enough to deal with the cyber threat that was evolving before our eyes. And a number of reasons for that. You know, one, I think, was uh, 9-11, of course, happened in uh, 2001. And so the focus was on uh, all things terrorism. And that was just at the time that, uh, you know, the Mafia Boy hack, it was clear that that was not an isolated incident. That was just a sort of a harbinger of things to come. And also just, as you know all too well, and our friends like John Carlin, who, as a cyber expert um, and know all too well, uh, dealing with cyber at the federal level is very difficult because it has aspects of so many different agencies and operations, um, and it requires, um, you know, uh, so much concern about privacy um, that it's very difficult to come up with silver bullets to deal with cyber threats. So, you know, as you, you sort of look through the OOs, we probably didn't get as far as we should have on the cyber front. And we remain remained vulnerable um, and vulnerable to a number of actors, not only, you know, hackers like Mafia Boy and scammers like the people who did the, the Twitter hack, but also nation states. And, you know, obviously one of the biggest threats is from China. And it has, has been that way for decades.
0: Yeah, and we should we should talk about the indictments that came down just two, two days ago against these Chinese hackers. Before we do, though, let me give you one more fun fact, Ken, as I was taking my trip down memory lane about this Mafia Boy hack. Do you know who was uh, one of the lead prosecutors focusing on prosecuting that mafia boy case. No
1: idea. Who was it?
0: So it was a U.S. attorney in San Francisco who was, at the time, um, a guy named Robert Mueller.
1: Oh, be darned.
0: Yeah. See, there, I st- I stumped you.
1: Oh, uh, you got me. Okay. I will say this. I will say this. If there was one sort of voice in the wilderness that was trying to focus on cyber issues in the early 00s, it was Bob Mueller.
0: No, that's true. That's true. He was was very focused on it early on. But, you know, fast forward, as we've kind of painfully observed, the uh, Clinton administration and the Bush administration and the Obama administration did not crack the code on this. And the threat here only uh, has escalated. And that was pretty evident just in the last uh, couple of days when we saw these indictments come down against two Chinese hackers for hacking into the systems of literally hundreds of companies, governments, you know, defense contractors, nonprofits, activists in the United States, in Hong Kong, in, you know, about a dozen other countries around the world. I mean, this is really know, yet another example of the Chinese efforts to go after intellectual property, but it's just an example of the threat we've been talking about. So we should we should kind of unpack what what's going on in those indictments. I mean, I read that indictment as you know a former prosecutor as I'm sure you did, Ken, and there there was a few things really I think to to take away from it. You know, from my perspective what was striking about the indictment is, first of all, we should tell people, so this was an indictment of two Chinese hackers. So they're in their 30s, according to the indictment. And these are guys who were working both for themselves, I think, to make a little money on the side, but also, according to the indictment, being used and deployed basically by the Chinese Ministry of State Security, right? So they're intelligence service. So they're both kind of moonlighting and being used by the uh, Chinese intelligence services. And they were going after high-tech information from companies ranging from defense contractors, going after like military satellite technology, to software gaming code, to most recently probing biotech companies for research related to the COVID vaccine and COVID treatments. So, you know, a wide-ranging effort and campaign to go after intellectual property, as well as uh, going after dissidents, too, according to the indictment in, in Hong Kong. So, and this was a 10-year-long campaign, according to the indictment, where they were seeking Intellectual property for again for their own gain as well as for the benefit of the of the Chinese state. So really a, a kind of a stunning piece of work by the prosecutors in this case, brought by uh, the division uh, that you and I both used to run at different at different points in in our careers. And really a, an interesting kind of presentation, both about the breadth of the campaign, about the tactics that these hackers were using, kind of hiding their files so that. Uh, the administrators of these systems in these companies and elsewhere couldn't see what they were doing. So really, just a, a, an impressive piece of work, but also a real stunning show that the Chinese are very much uh, still at this.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And this is trademark Chinese economic espionage. They, uh, for decades, they've made a policy of trying to hoover up everything they could possibly get a hold of. Yeah. And uh, and and this is a good example of it. So they've got this operation. It's a As I think the prosecutors called it, a blended operation, as you said, that involves both, you know, straight out hacking for commercial benefit, as well as use of these hacking tools and operations for their, quote unquote, national security purposes, like uh, identifying dissidents in Hong Kong and the like. And, you know, they're proceeding sort of on both paths using the same tools. And it is astonishing, the diversity of targets. A couple things about that uh, I think are important to note. As you mentioned, and as was highlighted...
0: I hope you've enjoyed this sample of the United Security Podcast. To listen to the full episode, head to cafe.com slash insider and try out the membership free for two weeks. Interested students with a valid .edu email can head to cafe.com slash student. To the many of you who have chosen to join the insider community, thank you for supporting our work. More to dos,
1: less time, and an infinite number of tools to keep track of. Sometimes doing business has never felt harder, but you don't need a miracle to hit your goals.